The U.S. government is still open, and that's a good thing. But a wall of worry seems to be closing in on investors. Here's what matters. Live from New York City, I'm Lauren Goodwin, and this is Market Matters from New York Life Investments. In this podcast, we bring you the best insights from across the New York Life Investments platform because we believe that by sharing perspectives and engaging with you, our listeners, we can all become better investors. Welcome, everyone. It's the week of October 2nd, 2023, and what an eventful weekend, folks. We were so geared up to talk to you about a government shutdown this morning. We're recording on the morning of October 2nd, and it seemed almost certain we were headed there, but that's not the case. A 45-day continuing resolution was reached so that lawmakers can finagle the 2024 budget while keeping the government open. That's good news. Julia Herman is here with me today to unpack just how much relief, or perhaps not, this might provide for investors and what other stakes are at play. Well, it's exactly like you said, Lauren. It is great news that we avoided a government shutdown. But at the same time, the market has had some indigestion the last couple of weeks. So can you just start us off by breaking down what that is really about? I think we'll spend a lot of our time on that today. But I do want to just mention that historically speaking, the market impact of a government shutdown tends to be felt more before the shutdown than when the shutdown actually happens. It's a phenomenon we call buy the rumor, sell the news. And so some of what we've seen in the last couple of weeks may have been concern about what's going on with the U.S. government, but there's lots of other things going on as well. Before we get on to those other things, I want to just talk a little bit about the shutdown first. Julia, was it really so important? If it had happened, would it have been important? It depends on who you ask. Because shutdowns are historically very, very short-lived, they're pretty much always discussed in terms of the impact to federal workers and market volatility or investor confidence, and less in terms of the broad impact to the economy. We're talking about a matter of days here. However, of course, the longer a shutdown would last could imply a greater impact to both the fundamental economy and to investor confidence and potentially also to market outcomes. Well, we may be facing a new government shutdown battle in 45 days after this continuing resolution expires. That would put us in about mid-November. If that were to happen, what should we be looking out for if and when it does? Well, when we thought that the shutdown was a foregone conclusion this time around, we were considering those inherently political facets of what could prolong or shorten a shutdown from its average of just shy of nine days. And the longest shutdown was also the most recent at 34 days. So the severity may be at least partially a function of how long the shutdown lasts. Now, in budget negotiations, the stability of the speakership position matters a lot in terms of the the stakes on the table. Then when we think about the more fundamental impact in the economy, we have to consider other structural factors that could be exacerbated by a shutdown. For example, labor shortages. And then pivoting to the market impact here, what is the base of volatility that we're coming from? Yields have made a sharp adjustment upward in recent weeks, and that called into question how we were analyzing the potential treasury reaction to a shutdown. 
Well, it's like we said, a government shutdown is potentially very important. It's certainly important for the workers who don't get paid during that time and the services that aren't rendered during that time. There's a lot of other things going on in this economy and markets. Exactly. And I would love to flip the microphone around on you today, Lauren. You know, the the shutdown was one portion of a whole bunch of other concerns, um, often described as a wall of worry that is facing investors right now. So I want to start off by addressing this whole spectrum of concerns by zooming out of just the shutdown conversation and to the broader fiscal and budget conversation. What happens next? Well, Congress, again, bought itself more time to work through the budgeting process. Funding for Ukraine and for border and immigration related spending were two of the major holdups in these past couple of weeks. And so they they have a little bit more time to work through big contentious issues like that. But I want to disambiguate the potential government shutdown from budget issues. Shutdowns are a political tactic used during budget negotiations, but they don't actually save the government money. That's often misunderstood by the general public. Shutdowns may stall the timeline of bills getting paid, but they still come due and the disruption of a shutdown can cost money as well. So budget issues or philosophy on long-term spending trends are a completely different matter. And we're still going to be working through those as a, as a government and as a society. Understood. So even though shutdowns are maybe not a huge fundamental concern on their own, like we've said, it's part of a broader spectrum of uh, indigestion that we're seeing in the market right now. If it's really not about the shutdown and if it's not about fundamental budget issues at the moment, what risks really matter the most for investors in your view right now? Well, first, I want to just acknowledge that the last couple of weeks, investors have been increasingly focused on risks, which is very different from late in the summer, for example, where the market tenor was very focused on a soft landing and the idea that the markets may be home free. But now risks to inflation, such as higher energy prices and still strong wages, which are highlighted by recent strikes and other similar activity. And also risks to economic growth, higher interest rates, which you mentioned. Fed policy suggesting that interest rates may be higher for longer. This risk of a government shutdown was certainly part of the issues, but fading corporate revenues and the impact of higher energy prices and student loan payments on the consumer, all of these risks are starting to feel heavier in the economy and markets. Now, none of these individually is likely to generate an outright bear market on their own. And Historically, an outright bear market related to an economic slowdown and doesn't tend to happen until we're already seeing a recession in the labor market and in corporate earnings. So we're not there yet. In that case, then, what we see really driving the market right now, the biggest risk, in other words, is that inflation has been firming. It looks a little sticky. And that's had an impact on financial conditions. Say more about that, Lauren, because why, why would that be a trigger point right now when financial conditions have been tightening, arguably since the Fed began hiking interest rates and even prior uh, back in 2022? And inflation has been a, a relatively resilient story for the past year plus. Why now? It's a good clarification. So when investors speak about financial conditions, they could mean several different things. First is monetary policy, which is, of course, the Fed raising or lowering interest rates. 
The second is bank lending conditions. So whether a lender is more or less stringent on their approach to lending. You can think about a bank, for example, when the economy is doing well and they don't see a bunch of big risks in the next couple of years, they might be a little easier on who they lend to and how much they lend. Whereas when they see risks rising to the economy, as has been the case this year, they might be a little more stringent on who they would lend to. So bank lending conditions, that second factor. And then finally, there's market financial conditions. So that could be the equity market going up or down or credit spreads tightening or widening, which of course have their own indication of where investors see risk in the economy. Now, for much of this year, actually, let's go back even further. For the last year and a half, those first two, monetary policy and bank lending conditions, have already been tightening. But for much of this year, market financial conditions were actually looking fine. The fact that the inflationary process was starting to ease a little bit, we were seeing pretty stable disinflation. Folks were getting more comfortable with the idea of a soft landing. And as a result, the equity market and the bond market have been looking okay. It's only over the course of this summer when energy prices started to move a little higher, inflation started to firm, that we've seen market financial conditions. And to look at this, by the way, we look at the Chicago Fed National Financial Conditions Index or the Goldman Sachs U.S. Financial Conditions Index. That's when we started to see market conditions tighten. And so you're right that this isn't a new story, but there's a little bit of a lagging and leading impact here monetary and big lending conditions tend to lead the economy, where market financial conditions tend to be right on time, and we're seeing that right on time risk. Understood. So what you're saying, Lauren, is that perhaps none of these individual sources of concern would be on their own enough to change investment outcomes, at least over the short and potentially even the medium term. However, when we put them together, there is that overall focus in risk that we're seeing, that wall of worry. Let's think about investment options in the environment. That brings us to the Portfolio Pause, a segment of the program where we share an investment idea. And here we build on the idea that the shutdown, even if it had happened, was one of only very many factors complicating life in this economy and investing in this market. And we've been referring to this as a wall of worry for investors who have already been affected by volatility this year. And one major area of volatility that we've been discussing has been in the U.S. Treasury market, where yields have been rising significantly over the past few months. Lauren, coming back to the original source of risk we were were thinking of talking about this week, did the shutdown have anything to do with that? Well, there are three reasons why Treasury yields can move higher. Long-term inflation expectations can move higher. Long-term expectations for the policy rate can move higher. And then there's this sort of other category around supply and demand. And that's where we see the biggest source of change over the course of this summer. What I mean by changes in supply and demand are, if you're thinking about a a U.S. Treasury at any point in the Treasury curve, why might there be more supply or less demand? Those are the things that would push Treasury yields higher. Well, more supply might be if the government is spending more money. And we know that there has been more Treasury supply over the past couple of years as a result of pandemic era spending and and other programs. Less demand, that's more of a question because when things are going wrong in the global economy, there's still a lot of demand for U.S. Treasuries as a perceived safe haven. But that supply-demand balance, even if there's changes on the margin, can push Treasury yields higher. And we believe that's what we've been seeing over the past couple of months. 
Well, of course, Lauren, when we're thinking about the supply and demand specifically of treasuries, the the general perception of the safety of those instruments, of the creditworthiness of the U.S. government is instrumental. We're talking about a shutdown. We had a debt ceiling issue this year. We're heading into an election year. Are you concerned about the credit rating of the U.S.? I am concerned, if for no other reason than that we've seen some movement in U.S. credit rating already this year. And the one credit ratings agency or major credit ratings agency that has not yet downgraded U.S. debt by a notch, Moody's, said that dynamics like the government shutdown that we've been seeing over the past couple of weeks as negotiations have drawn on impact their thinking. And so it is certainly possible that we would see another credit rating downgrade in the U.S., It's worth mentioning, though, that the U.S. is still one of the highest rated in terms of sovereign credit in the world and that these long term dynamics around government spending and how the government is funded are really important for the durability of that credit rating. Now, changes to faith in the U.S. government's ability to move the ball forward don't change overnight. So we wouldn't see this as an immediate risk, but it is certainly something that we're looking at. And I'm sure we'll be talking a lot about in an election year. It's a great point of context, Lauren, when we're thinking about risk across the treasury curve, it really is all relative. And the U.S. is still very highly rated as a sovereign issuer. So we've seen a pretty meaningful move up in yields across the treasury curve and other portions of the fixed income market in the U.S. For investors who might potentially be wanting to add interest rate risk, adding duration, do you think this is the time yet, Lauren? Well, I first want to acknowledge that investors who are thinking about adding duration or interest rate risk into their portfolios are doing so because we've seen rates rise, especially in the long end of the curve. And that's that can be a, a point of interest for investors who expect that the yields may fall closer to some long-term average over time. For us, though, we're looking really closely at those three reasons why interest rates tend to move higher. I mentioned inflation over the long term, Fed funds rate over the long term, and supply and demand factors. And what we see historically is that when rates are moving higher because of those supply and demand or risk factors, rates can be more volatile. So if you couple that potential volatility with what we see as still a very inverted yield curve where there's some attractive opportunities in the short end of the curve to capture yield, it's not our favorite place to add risk. Now, I will say that for investors who are able to be very tactical in duration, there certainly may be an opportunity in this recent run-up in rates. But for us, we're focused on shorter duration in corporate credit And then looking at the municipal curve, where we see long-term interest rate risk being better rewarded in terms of where we might add duration. We know, though, that even in periods of volatility like this, there are risks to not taking risks, right? There's that FOMO, the fear of missing out, especially when we think in terms of holistic investing over time. So if not in duration or treasuries right now, Lauren, where are you feeling more compelled to take some risk recently? First, I want to acknowledge that investors are looking for a story for the fourth quarter. What is the market going to look like? And the reality may very well be that because we're late in the economic cycle, but we're not in recession yet, that the market's a little sideways and volatile. The good news is that all this conversation about higher yields means that investors who are staying invested can capture those higher yields 
even in a sideways, range-bound, volatile market. And so we're looking at staying invested, including in corporate credit. And in equities, we're looking at opportunities for capturing long-term trends around infrastructure, including digital infrastructure and the green energy transition, and in value equities. We, we see plenty of opportunities out there for investors. The mix of duration, as you've been asking, or credit risk or equity risk are going to depend on that investor's long-term goals. Coming up next, we'll be back next week to talk a little bit more about the fiscal spending discussion that Julie and I were having earlier. What's the update on the government's financial bill of health and what should investors look out for as we head into an election year? But that's it for today. We'll be back next week for more Market Matters. In the meantime, please remember to give us a like, follow, or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a question or topic of interest, reach out to us on LinkedIn. You can also follow our views at newyorklifeinvestments.com and click the Insights tab. Until then, I'm Lauren Goodwin here with Julia Herman, and we'll see you next time. Our podcast is produced by Will Tyus, and our music was composed by the fabulous Zach Young. I will now read our disclosures from compliance. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, which will vary. All investments are subject to market risk and will fluctuate in value. This material represents an assessment of the market environment as at a specific date, is subject to change, and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information should not be relied upon by the reader as research or investment advice regarding the funds or any issuer or security in particular. The strategies discussed are strictly for illustrative and educational purposes and are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. There is no guarantee that any strategies discussed will be effective. This material contains general information only and does not take into account an individual's financial circumstances. This information should not be relied upon as a primary basis for an investment decision. Rather, an assessment should be made as to whether the information is appropriate in individual circumstances and consideration should be given to talking to a financial advisor before making an investment decision. New York Life Investments is both a service mark and the common trade name of certain investment advisors affiliated with the New York Life Insurance Company. Securities are distributed by Nylife Distributors, LLC, 30 Hudson Street, Jersey City, New Jersey, 07302, a wholly owned subsidiary of New York Life Insurance Company. Nylife Distributors, LLC is a member of FINRA SIPC.